Welcome to the rooted course. Uh, this course is going to be a little bit different to usual because normally when I teach the rooted course, and I've probably taught it on 10 occasions, we have a room full of people and as I go through the material, people are able to comment on what I'm saying and ask questions as we go. And often half of the, the course content is made up of discussion with, with people in the room. So my, my goal is to make this an interactive course. That's not really possible in this format. But please, whatever comments or questions you do have, post them at the bottom of this video. And I will look at the questions and any questions that are there, I will try to respond to either with another video uh, or just in, in writing. But I don't just want to speak and give you no opportunity to respond. But anyway, welcome to the Rooted course. Uh, this is the first session and we're going to be looking at what it means to become a Christian. I think becoming a Christian is something that we talk about very glibly sometimes, but often we don't really dig down and ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to become a Christian? And is Am I really a Christian or is this other person really a Christian? So in today's session, we're going to be looking at what is involved in becoming a Christian. And some of what I say may be, may be surprising. So that is, that's the purpose of the rooted course. Rightio, so where does the name The Rooted Course come from? Well, I was inspired by a verse that I found in Colossians 2 verse 6, where we read, As you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and being built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. So there is this command in the Bible for us to be rooted in the faith as we are built up and sadly not all Christians are rooted and you will also recall from Jesus parable of the sower that we find in in Mark 13 it's a it's a parable that Jesus told about the kingdom of God and how people respond to the word of God and how people respond to what God is doing in their lives and the picture there is of the seed going out and some seed falls on, on bad ground and, and there's no response, there's no growth. Some seed falls on good ground. And in verse 21 it says, however, since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. So there are those in this world who respond to the message of Jesus, the message about the kingdom of God, and there is life that takes root in them. But Jesus' point in the parable of the sower is that unless we're, we're deeply rooted in the things of God and in our faith, when trouble and persecution come, we fall away. And so the rooted course is designed to help people be sure of their faith and to understand what their, their faith is truly about. So, so in the course today, we're really going to be looking at a case study of a very famous individual who became a Christian, and we know him by two names. His, his Jewish name, he's Saul of Tarsus, and he was a, a famous Pharisee. But for those of us who are Christians, we tend to call him by his Christian name and know him as the Apostle Paul. But I would, uh, I would say that Saul's conversion to Christianity is the most significant Christian conversion of all times. I mean, the impact of, of Paul's life has, has been truly amazing. So it's a, it's a highly significant conversion experience. And in fact, it's even reported three times in the Bible. You know, for someone's conversion experience to be recorded on three separate occasions in the Bible. You've got to know that it's an important conversion. 
obviously everyone's conversion is important, but this this conversion is spoken about three times in the Bible, in Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 22, and in Acts chapter 26. So the Bible speaks a fair bit about Saul's conversion, and we know it happened on, on the Damascus Road. So I want to read this passage to us, because also the rooted course, we really dig down into Scripture. It is, it is a Bible-based course. So here we go. How Saul of Tarsus became a Christian. Acts 9 verses 1 to 22. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if, if, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting how Christianity was first referred to? It was referred to as the way. Anyway, in verse 3, we read this. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And you will know from this passage that Paul was persecuting Christians. He was an, an upright and outstanding Pharisee, a leader of the Jewish faith. And he, he saw this new Christian, uh, new Christian group calling themselves the way as a, as, a, as a terrible, heretical group that needed to be stamped out. And, and as he neared Damascus, he sees this light and the, hears the voice talking to him. So he says, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. It's important that we recognize what Saul is doing after he's been struck with blindness and after he's heard the voice. He is praying. And verse 12, in a vision he has seen a man, he's seen you, Ananias, come and place your hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem 
among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Isn't that an amazing statement? That here we have kind of the leading, a leading figure in Judaism, a Pharisee on a mission to stamp out Christianity, becoming a Christian himself. So it must have been something pretty amazing that changed Paul's mind. But we're going to unpack Paul's conversion story in just a moment. But the Bible uses physical birth as a metaphor for spiritual birth. And some of the material that's inspired uh, what I'm sharing with you today is David Pawson's book called The Normal Christian Birth. And in that book, which is well worth a read, David makes the point that, that not everybody seems to get properly birthed into the kingdom of God. And I want to unpack for us today what the normal Christian birth looks like. Spiritual birth, like physical birth, is a process. We all know that babies don't just arrive. There, there is a nine-month-long process before a baby is, is born. And labor has various trimesters, well, three in fact. Even, at, even once the baby comes out, it, its cord needs to be cut and, and the baby needs to be cared for. So, so birth is not something, the arrival of a child into this world is not an instantaneous event. It, it is a process that begins with conception, in fact a little bit before conception, and, and there is this process that outworks itself. And in this process, there are milestones and markers. Another thing that's worth ob observing is that birth is a vulnerable time. We all know how common it was for, for women to die in childbirth. Childbirth was, was a vulnerable experience. And, and often things went badly wrong, terribly wrong. And, and midwives are there to assist with the birth, to, to, to help the woman giving birth, and, and to make sure that it is a good birth. Another reason why I love the, the metaphor of physical birth for spiritual birth is, is because it's all a little mysterious and glorious. There is something miraculous about a, a new life coming into this world. It's we don't understand most of it, and, and it's a glorious thing. And, and I believe that physical birth is really a great metaphor for spiritual birth for these reasons. And you'll know that in John chapter 3, Jesus even talks about the need to be born again. And here Jesus is talking to another Pharisee. This is a man named Nicodemus, and we'll look at him in great detail next week. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And we read this in, in John chapter 3. And even as a Jewish rabbi, he makes this observation in verse 2 of John chapter 3. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, because no one could perform the miraculous miracles the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. So here's another Jewish Pharisee who can see that there's something amazing about Jesus. And he, he comes at night because he doesn't want to be seen. He's, he's talking to the enemy, as it were, and he meets up with Jesus. And Jesus says this to him, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. We need another birth experience. And Nicodemus asks the obvious question, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely we can't enter a second time into our mother's womb to be born again. 
And Jesus reiterates what he said the first time. He said, I tell you the truth. Whenever Jesus uses that phrase, Amen, Amen, in the King James, verily, verily, I say unto you. He's saying this is super important that I'm telling you. When Jesus, who always told the truth, begins something that he's saying with the words, I tell you the truth. We've got to know it's important. So in John 3, 5, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. That phrase, born of water, speaks to the breaking of waters that usually precedes labor and childbirth. It's not a a reference to baptism. So we need to be born of water. We need to be born physically, Jesus says, but we also need to be born of and through the Spirit. And I know that that's what is being referred to because in the next sentence, verse 6, Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh. In other words, he's picking up on that uh, on that picture. On the one hand, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And so here's Jesus using the, the imagery of, of physical birth, the birth of a baby, to draw some comparisons with spiritual birth when we're born again into the kingdom of God. So we all need to experience two births. The the first birth is a physical one, and it gives birth to that which is physical. But we need a second birth, a spiritual birth, where that which is spiritual becomes alive within us. So now we're going to look at the milestones in the birth process. And using the conversion of Paul, I want to identify the stages that we all go through in becoming a Christian. And you may find that you've not been through all these stages. And if you find that, that that's a good thing to discover. Because what I'm sharing with you is, is really how one becomes a Christian. So, so I want to start with the, this observation that we are all sinners. It, it's not a pleasant thought. But we are born sinners. We're we're not born uh, these morally perfect creatures. No, we're we're born with what the Bible calls original sin. It's it's passed down from from Adam and Eve. and, And everybody comes into this world a sinner. And that's why we sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're born sinners. We're born with with a defect. We're born spiritually dead. We're born not in a relationship with God. And I think this is illustrated for us in Saul's life. In, in Acts chapter 9 verse 1, his testimony begins with these words, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And, and Saul is an angry man. He's, he's, he's a self-righteous man. He's a, he's a proud man. He, in fact, calls himself the chief of sinners. But, but he's, he, he's, he's throwing people in prison. He's, he stood there while, while the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was stoned to death. Saul was the guy that, that looked after everybody's clothes as they stoned a man to death. Saul was was not a nice guy. He was very religious, but he was a murderer. And and I think how Saul starts off is a kind of more radical, more expressed version of of how we all start off. Here's here's a quotation from, from, from Paul. As he, as he wrote Ephesus, as he wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 3, all of us lived among the world, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. 
And like everybody else, we were by nature objects of wrath. So this is how we come into the world. We don't come into the world as, uh, as some people might teach us. We don't come into this world good and then society and its influences makes us bad. Certainly society does have a bad influence on people, but they're just helping what is already a rotten apple. So we come into this world where there's sinful nature, and that's spelt out here. And in fact, Ephesians 2, Paul even makes the point that, that Satan, who he refers to in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, he refers to Satan as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So not only are we all dead in our sins, but the Bible tells us that Satan is, is actively at work in our lives. And we're in a rebellious state towards God. We're alienated from God. And, and we are sinners and we are dead. And God is angry with us. That's what it says here at the end of verse 3. We are like everybody else, and Paul is talking about himself as well, like the rest, and he's writing to Christians, we were by nature objects of wrath. Romans chapter 3 also talks about the sinful natures that we are born with, and it's very important that we understand our sinful nature, because if we don't understand that we have a sinful nature, we're not going to really understand why we need to be saved. So here in Romans 3, Paul goes into great detail about the human condition. And in Romans 3 verse 10, he says this, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. We are not born with a natural desire to, to seek after God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul goes on in verse 20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. Here's the good news, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. And this is what the law and the prophets were speaking about. This righteousness from God comes through having faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I'm sharing these passages with you because they, they go into more detail about what it means to have a sinful nature. But all of us have a sinful nature. There is nobody who is righteous. And we are slaves to our sinful nature. But now we get to the good news. And we see this illustrated in the, the story of Saul of Tarsus becoming Paul the Apostle. I believe there is a point in all of our lives, perhaps many occasions, where God reaches out to us. Where God reaches out to us. It is God who initiates salvation in our lives. That's why I believe in election, that God does in fact reach out to people and it's His reaching out that causes us to respond to God. Because there's nothing in us, because we are sinners, that would make us turn to God. And here in this case study of the Apostle Paul, we, we see God reaching out to him. And that's a radical experience. We even use the phrase, a Damascus Road experience. It's, it's become part of the English language. That kind of flashing lights, massive about turn in how we're living. But it's a, it, 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 it illustrates for us that Saul's, Saul's not seeking after God. He's, 
He's on a path to kill Christians. He's a person living his life in rebellion against God. He's not submitted to God. He thinks he's super righteous, but he's not. But God reaches out to him and and God confronts him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I believe God does the same for each one of us. This is confirmed for us in a passage like Romans 5, where we read that it is God who demonstrates his own love for us. And thus, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we have become a Christian, if you have become a Christian, it is not because there's something in you that makes you a better person than somebody else. If, if we are Christians, if we have come to that place of, of believing in Jesus, of being born again, and, and we're in a relationship with God, it is purely because God has reached out to us. It's not because we reached out to God. We reach out to God because He reaches out to us. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were sinners... Christ died for us. Jesus didn't come and die for us because we were, we were asking for it. Next very important part of becoming a Christian is what we see from verse 6 onwards. So, so Saul is, is struck blind. He's struck blind and he's taken by the hand to a house and, and he doesn't eat anything. He's, he's fasting. And we know from what God tells Ananias in that vision that, that, he is, that he is fasting and he is praying. And we read that in verse 9. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And we need to ask ourselves the question, why was... Saul blinded. Why did God blind Saul temporarily? And I believe the answer is because God wanted to get his attention. God wanted to focus his attention. God wanted to give Saul time to think about his life. And Saul needed to think about how his life needed to change in light of what he now understood about Jesus. And I believe, broadly speaking, we can refer to this part of Saul becoming a Christian as repentance, as repentance. He believed in Jesus because he'd encountered him, and then he had to spend time thinking, well, now how does my life need to change in light of what has been revealed to me. So the, the aspect of becoming a Christian that I want to pick up on here is, is called believing. Believing is an important part of becoming a Christian. Like, like a hugely important part. Perhaps the most important part of all. So just stay with me here. The first thing I've tried to point out in this this timeline of becoming a Christian. We start off here in with a sinful nature, living a life out of fellowship with God. And we are actually an object of God's wrath. And we do bad things. They come naturally to us. And, and we're not in a relationship with God. So that's how we all begin. Simply hearing the gospel and even understanding it, or even having some kind of encounter with God, does not make us a Christian. And this is what a lot of people get wrong. They think, well, I, I understand the gospel, I've heard the gospel, I've been to church, but that doesn't make you a Christian. It's just a part of the process. It's the first part of the process. We have to believe we have to believe the gospel. And when the Bible talks about belief, it means 
basing our lives on this new information. It means we, we accept that it is true what we have heard. That is what belief is. And the gospel can't be proven to us. This is why it is a faith. And we read in, in John 20 these very important words. And I'm reading these words from John 20 because they, they talk about faith and the nature of faith. And re remember in John 20, the, the disciples come and they say, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas responds and says, well, that's all good, for, good and fine for you. You've, you believe. And he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. So here's Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas, although he's just really a, a rational person. He says, well, I'm not going to just believe it. I, I need you to see before I believe it. And then you'll know how the story goes on. Jesus does show up and he says to Thomas, okay, Thomas, um, put your hand in my sides. Look at the, the piercings in my hand. And then Jesus says these very important words to Thomas. He says, stop doubting and believe. And these two things go together. We need to stop doubting. Doubting is when you're not sure whether a thing is true or not. Could be true, it, it might not be. Doubting is when you you assume it isn't true. And having faith is when you assume that it is true. So faith and doubt are always two sides of the same coin. And Jesus says to, to Thomas, Thomas, you need to stop doubting and believe. And there, those are two actions there. We have to choose not to doubt and we have to choose to believe. And both of those things are choices by the way, and we'll get into the nature of faith and doubt uh, later in the rooted course. And then Jesus just uh, wraps up this chapter by saying, uh, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I want to take a few moments now to talk about repentance, to talk about repentance. Because I think it is a very crucial part of becoming a Christian. And it's the part that people to, tend to leave out. When the gospel is often preached in our day and age, the, the, the plea is made, we'll come to Jesus and he'll accept you as you are. Well, I'm not so sure that Jesus does actually accept us as we are, because the whole point of the gospel is to change us. Uh, and if you don't want to be changed, well, then you can't really become a Christian, because becoming a Christian means embracing a new way of life. So let me talk to you about repentance Remember our timeline of the process involved in becoming a Christian. We start off kind of being anti-God. Number two, God reaches out to us in His grace. Number three, we, we believe. We, we suddenly start having faith and, and we stop doubting and we believe. And there's this fourth thing that needs to happen. Because we believe... We now need to act on that belief, and that's called repentance. And if you truly do believe something that it's true, you will act on it. And if you don't act on it, it shows that you don't really believe it. I want you to imagine that you're standing at the bottom of a skyscraper. And there's some people working at the top of the skyscraper. And they're actually, they've got some huge heavy concrete block up there that they're about to tip off the top of the skyscraper. And you're standing at the bottom of the skyscraper exactly where that block is about to fall. And some uh, kind supervisor comes up to you and says, 
excuse me, sir, but there's a block of concrete is about to get pushed off the top of the building and it's going to land on your head if you don't move. And that kind of is an example of when we hear the gospel, we hear that God is going to judge us, that uh, God is not happy with the way humanity is functioning and, and he's going to set things right. So the gospel contains a, a warning. And when we hear that warning, when we get told uh, there's a block of concrete about to fall on your head, you can't just say, yes, I believe you, thank you very much, and, and continue to stand there. That's what some people are like with the gospel. They say, yes, well, I believe the gospel, but they, they don't change their lives. And that shows that they don't really believe the gospel. They're just saying they believe the gospel. Because if you're standing under the skyscraper and someone says, excuse me, sir, Madam, there's a, there's a block of concrete about to fall where you're standing. If you believe what that person has told you, you will move out of the way. There is this relationship between what we believe and how we act. And so believing and changing our lives go hand in hand. And those that really do believe, they change. They repent. And those that don't really believe, they don't repent, they don't change. And you can always tell if someone's faith is, is real or not by looking to see if their life has changed. So let me show you from the Bible how important repentance actually is. And I'm surprised that in churches we don't hear more about repentance we, the gospel is often presented to people as believe in the Lord and you will be saved. And that's a very important part of it. But that's not all the gospel is. So let me show you from the scriptures, particularly from the gospels, how important repentance is. So you've all heard of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousins. John the Baptist was the guy that got sent to prepare the way for Jesus. He was there to kind of bring about a change in people's thinking to make them hungry for what God was going to do. And we read that John's entire message was all about repentance. Mark 1 verse 4 says, John came baptizing in the desert region, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and John even dressed in a sparse uh, a sparse manner his whole life was a testimony to the corruption of the world he lived a simple life and his message was we need to we need to repent we need to stop sinning we need to get our lives right with God because God is going to do something great so you could summarize John the Baptist's message and in fact, the gospel summarizes it for us. He was preaching a baptism of repentance. And then interestingly enough, when Jesus comes along, and when Jesus starts to preach the gospel, his message is not God loves everybody. That was not the message that Jesus preached. The message that Jesus preached is found for the first time in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. We read that Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. That word good news, that's where we get the word gospel from. And it means the announcement of God. Uh, 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 something that needs to be spread about. It's, it's an announcement Jesus came proclaiming the gospel, the euangelion, the announce, God's announcement. And what is that announcement? Verse 15, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. In other words, this new kingdom, this new way of life that the Jews had been longing for for years was about to be established. And then Jesus says, repent and believe the announcement, the gospel, the good news. So the very first thing that John the Baptist says when he arrives on the scene is repent for the kingdom of God is near. 
And then the very first thing that Jesus says when he first is announcing the gospel is he says, well, the kingdom is almost here. And what is the response required from you? It's to repent and to believe. It's, it's fascinating to me that Jesus doesn't even say, change the order. Jesus doesn't even say, you need to believe and repent. It, it's as almost though Jesus is emphasizing the importance of repentance in that couplet. Because if you believe, you will repent. If you don't believe, you won't. And then this message of repentance carries on. I, I, I want you to think now of the day of Pentecost, when, when the Holy Spirit's being poured out and Peter stands up for the first time to preach the gospel. And he preaches a long gospel message and he doesn't mention anything at all about God loving anybody. He talks about how God sent Jesus into the world. He talks about the miracles that Jesus did. And he talks about how you have, have crucified Jesus. You can read his, his whole sermon. It's the first sermon Peter ever preached. And at the end of it, people feel really bad. The Bible says they were cut to the heart. And they say to each other, brothers, what must we do? And of course, it's no surprise to us what Peter says that they must do. He says to them, Peter replied, verse 38 of Acts 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? After the gospel is preached for the first time on the day of Pentecost, this is now the church age, the gospel's put out there and people say, well, what must we do now? How must we respond to this message? The very first word that comes out of Peter's mouth is repent. The assumption is obviously that people have believed what he's told them. So he says to them, repent. And be baptized. And baptism was a way of publicly responding to, to the message that they'd heard. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. Again, sin is at the heart of what the gospel addresses. Uh, Peter doesn't say, well, believe and, and enter into this lovely relationship with God. That is true, but that's not how he phrases it, because that comes later. When he preaches the gospel, he says you need to repent. And you need to publicly respond and, and, and turn over a new leaf in your life. And it's like something automatically will then happen, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it begins with repentance. And then Peter goes on to warn them in verse 40. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Save yourselves. In other words, respond to the gospel and escape the, the judgment that is going to come upon this corrupt generation that we're a part of. So I want you to see that repentance is, is a critical aspect of becoming a Christian. Becoming a Christian involves hearing from God, God reaching out to us. We hear the gospel and then it involves us thinking about it and, and, and considering how our lives need to change if in fact the gospel is true. And then we, as we believe, we need to repent. We need to repent. What is repentance? Repentance means that we stop sinning. It means that we stop doing those things in our lives that are offensive to God. It means stop, stop doing the things that are offensive to God. And we're not always going to get it right, and Christians don't become perfect overnight, or even over a lifetime. 
but we re- repenting is the way we respond to God. The gospel is not just, I believe something in my head and I carry on living my life any old how. No, becoming a Christian is believing something and then, and then acting on it, living it out, repenting. Repentance is so important. That's why when John the Baptist arrived, he says, repent. When Jesus starts preaching, he says, repent. And when Peter on the day of Pentecost preaches his first sermon, his first word is repent. Repenting is is super important. And I think one of the best descriptions of repentance is found in James chapter 4. And repentance is about having a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. It's not just thinking, I wish I was different. It is in the strength and power of God, turning from sin and beginning to live a life that pleases God. In James chapter 4, James has got this lovely description of what it means to really repent. And it's, it's, it's hectic stuff. It's, it's hard words. But I find it so useful to grasp what repentance is all about. In James 4, we read this. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. There are spiritual powers at work in our lives. Remember Ephesians 2 verse 2. The spirit of the power of the air is at work in those who are disobedient. We need to resist the devil. Verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Who's going to see God? Only those that have pure hearts. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And now come some pretty amazing instructions. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Friends, this is radical stuff, but this is what's involved in becoming a Christian. It's involved, it involves repentance, a change of heart. And we need to grieve over the things that we've done wrong in our lives. We need to mourn how we have failed God and hurt others. And there's a time also even to wail. This is what repentance looks like. And this is why for for Saul of Tarsus, it took him three days of of kind of mourning and grieving and, and maybe some wailing as he thought about how his life needed to change in light of the gospel. So let's go back to... Saul's conversion. Then Ananias comes to him and God has sent him. And they have a time of prayer together and Ananias prays for Saul and kind of reassures him and and loves him and shows him that he's accepted into the family of God. And the point I want to make here also in the stages of becoming a Christian is that There must be other Christians involved in our conversion experience. There's a role for for the church represented by individuals to embrace us, to welcome us in. And God uses other people in our lives to help us to grow as a Christian. But something very significant happens when Ananias comes to, to minister to Saul. And we read about it in in verse 17. Brother Saul, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. In some of the course, some of the sessions in this rooted course, we're going to delve deeply into what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And we're going to look at what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to go into that detail now. But what we need to pick up here is that a very important part of becoming a Christian 
is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not an optional extra for Christians that are like going to go to the mission field or something. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is is super important. It's, it's part and parcel of becoming a Christian, being filled with the Spirit. It happens to Paul three days after he's believed and, and as he's in this process of repenting, Ananias comes and prays for him to experience healing and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So in my understanding of the process of being born again, Being filled with the Spirit is part of that process. Think of a baby being born. The umbilical cord being cut is is an important step in the process of being born. Sure, you're out the womb. Now you're out the birth canal. But something still needs to happen to you before you're properly born. And so it is with becoming a Christian. We need to hear the gospel, respond to it, believe it, choose to believe it, choose to act on it, which is repentance. And then we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this this happens for Paul and his life changes. Ananias lays his hands on him and he has an experience of the Holy Spirit coming into him. And that changes Saul. Another thing that happens to him is that he experiences healing. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And we need to understand that salvation is not just about having our sins forgiven. That's an important part of it. But salvation is about God transforming our lives, even in this world. Even in this world, we experience salvation. It's a process. Experiencing heaven one day. That's part of salvation. But we start to experience that salvation being outworked on us, even in, in this life. But there's another important part to becoming a Christian that I must mention. And that is being baptized. Paul was baptized. Also at that time, when Ananias came to him, three days after his encounter with God, he is baptized. Remember, that's what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. This is how you are to show that you're you're becoming a Christian. Baptism is, it's a dunking in water, a submerging in water that is a symbol of dying with Christ, of being buried with Christ. That's why you stay under the water for a little bit. And then you come up out of the water. The water is, is, is a metaphor for sand. It's a metaphor for being dead and buried. And we do it all in the name of Jesus because it's an identification with the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. And I want to say that that baptism is also an important part of becoming a Christian. It's the way in which we demonstrate our belief to others that we are following Jesus. And then we see that Paul begins to spend time in Damascus with the other disciples. He gets involved with the Christian community. And this is important too. Being a Christian is not something that we do on our own. We're we're meant to do it. Being a Christian is a group thing. It's something we do together. And so when you become a Christian, again, we see this beautifully in in Paul's conversion. He, He was a Jew, but He becomes a Christian and now he starts to become part of the Christian community. And he begins to serve. So let me try to wrap this up. So I've tried to show today that becoming a Christian is a process. Christians don't just pop out of nowhere. We don't just wake up one morning and decide I'm going to be a Christian. There is a process of of hearing the gospel, of of learning about the gospel. There's a process of God reaching out to us 
And there becomes this turning point where suddenly it makes sense to us. We start to believe, and it can be a a kind of, I'm going to stop doubting and I'm going to start believing. So we get to that place where we now believe in God's announcement. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and we believe that He died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. We, We start to believe these things, but that doesn't make us a Christian. Simply believing doesn't make you a Christian. In James chapter 2, James is sarcastic and he says, You believe that God is one. And he's referring to the great creed of Judaism. He's saying, You believe all the right theology. He says, Well, the demons believe all the right theology as well. That doesn't make you a Christian. What makes a person a Christian is the believing and the repenting. If you just believe, that doesn't make you a Christian. Because as James points out, that shows that your belief isn't really genuine. It, 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 it's not a true belief. You're just saying you believe. Because if you really believe the gospel, you will live differently. If you understand that you are an object of God's wrath, as we all are, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2. If you believe that, you will change your life. If you understand the gospel, and at the heart of the gospel is the message, you can repent, and God can change you, and He wants to change you. If you believe in the gospel, you will repent. So to wrap this up, we all start off in life being anti-God. At some point, God reaches out to us. And then at some point, we respond to that. And by God's grace, we come to believe the gospel. But believing is not enough. That can just be intellectual assent or head knowledge. True faith is, is when it drops from the head to the heart. And we start to live it and believe it. And that leads to repentance. And I believe that is what makes a person born again or not. It's that we've, choose to, we've chosen to act on the gospel. But there are three other aspects. We need to then be filled with the Spirit. That's an important part of becoming a Christian. You can't live the Christian life unless you've been filled with the Spirit. You're going to muddle along getting nothing right, having no power in your life. Becoming a Christian involves believing, repenting, being filled with the Spirit. You should be baptized as as an outward sign that these inward realities have taken place in your life. And we need to get involved in the Christian community of faith. So friends, to, to wrap this up, sometimes people, they believe the gospel, but they never repent and they're never filled with the, the Spirit. And I don't believe those people have been properly birthed into God's kingdom. There's something amiss. There's something wrong with their birth experience. Other times people believe the gospel. They repent of their sins, but they're they're not filled with the Spirit. Or it's something that happens 20 years later to them. How terrible is that? Being filled with the Spirit belongs at the start of the Christian life. It's God equipping you to to be different, to, to live for him. And sometimes these things can happen in, in a different order. In Acts chapter 19, we see people being filled with the Spirit, um, but they haven't been baptized yet. So sometimes that swaps around. People are, are first, they believe, they repent, they're filled with the Spirit. There are four aspects to becoming a Christian. There's the believing, the repenting, the being filled with the Spirit, and the being baptized in water. And I need to ask you, where are you in your spiritual birth? Have all of these things happened in your life? To end this session, let me just summarize for you the gospel. Firstly, our need for salvation. We were created in the image of God for, our, for a relationship with God. But sin came into the world through the fall of Adam 
and Eve and brought alienation between ourselves and God. This is the sad situation we all find ourselves in. This is why the world is in the mess that it is, that it is in. We're all in need of salvation. What are the consequences of sin? Well, we're, we're separated from God. Isaiah said it's not that God's arm is too short that He can't reach into your life. But your sins have caused God to hide His face from you. We're, our sin separates us from God. We're under Satan's influence God has his Holy Spirit, Satan has a spirit, and that spirit is at work in those who don't believe, Ephesians 2 verse 2. Also, as a consequence of sin, our lives are damaged and we damage other people. This is why the world is in such a mess. And we're under God's wrath and we're destined for hell. This is... This is the, the situation that the gospel speaks into. We're objects of God's wrath. And what has Jesus done to save us? Well, he, he left the, the comfort of heaven and he came to this world to be our savior. He experienced life here on earth firsthand. He revealed to us what God is like. He affirmed all of the teachings of the Old Testament. And he said, I've come to fulfill it. And here's something more about God. And he died in our place. So I hope you found today's session helpful on what is involved in becoming a Christian. It's, it's not a simple thing like going to church or being born into a home where your parents are Christians. It's not even about having a Christian worldview. That doesn't make you a Christian. A Christian is a person who, who truly believes the gospel, who has genuinely repented of their sins, always trying to do so with the strength God provides. And part of that becoming a Christian process involves being filled with the Holy Spirit and being baptized in water as an outward sign. Let me close with some words from Isaiah 53. These words were written 700 years before Jesus' birth here on earth. And we know these words were written before Jesus was born because the whole scroll of Isaiah forms part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was found. And Isaiah prophesies, who's believed our message? To who is the arm of the Lord being revealed? And he's talking about Jesus. He grew up. Before him, like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus wasn't a good-looking man. Isaiah says he had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. It wasn't like you'd look at Jesus in the crowd and go, wow. That is a good-looking guy. There was nothing about Jesus that would make you take a second look. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. But he was God in human form, hidden before our eyes. And this is why he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering. I don't believe Jesus had an easy life. He was like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our, our weaknesses. He carried our sorrows, but we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. And indeed he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. 
and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. There again is the reference to there being no one righteous. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Well, I hope that uh, we've got off to a good start together. And I would really love to know what you think about what I've shared today. If you don't agree with me about anything, that's really fine. I'd love to know how you see things, even if you see things differently. So please uh, leave a comment for me or send me a WhatsApp. But uh, I'd love to hear from you. And particularly if you have questions about what is involved in becoming a Christian, please share that with me. And I look forward to meeting with you next week again when we, when we look at the whole subject of being born again. What is that experience of spiritual rebirth, of regeneration, to use a more uh, theological term? So next week we're going to be looking at being born again. But today was the process of being born again. Thank you.